This is the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Our first episode features Dr. Cheryl Thompson. So thank you so much, Dr. Cheryl Thompson, for being with us today. And uh, what I'd like to do is just begin by sharing Dr. Cheryl Thompson's amazing bio. So Dr. Cheryl Thompson is a writer, professor, and public speaker. She applies a historical lens to the study of race, media, and culture within the context of Canada and unpacks how race is produced through representational forms, such as 19th century lithographs, to newspaper advertising and including radio, television, film, and the theater. Her research inspired her to develop an extensive database documenting a past previously ignored in this country. Her ongoing research gives voice to the voiceless and agency to those who, in their time, lacked the social capital to speak publicly about the injustices they experienced privately. Dr. Thompson will continue to uncover histories of anti-Black racism and Black face performance, as well as preserving histories of Black beauty, entrepreneurship, and the contributions of Black Canadians to the arts, to improve understandings of these topics, and to promote a meaningful conversation nationally about an equitable future. Dr. Thompson is the author of two books and is currently working on a third book and is also producing a feature documentary film. She's also working on a project mapping Ontario's Black historical archives. So thank you so much, Dr. Cheryl Thompson. It is an absolute pleasure and an honor to spend some time with you today. So thank you for being here. No, thank you so much for that and that introduction too. (laughs) Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, We first um, sort of met each other or I, I sort of met you from afar in November 2021 when you were on an absolutely stellar panel hosted by Sonia Boone and I was just blown away by you know the amazing content that you shared um, the amazing uh, way that you shared it with such vibrancy and such advocacy towards creativity especially in academia being in academia and um, sharing your voice, your perspective, and how you approach the work that you do. And that got me kind of just fascinated to read some of your work and engage with it. And I was on a journey over the last few months, reading your publications, your books, and some of your articles, seeing your many YouTube videos. I mean, and... is, there, is there a through line? Have you, have you discovered a through line through everything? <laughs> I, I think the through line is excellence, you know, and... <laughs> Um, And just, you know, hard work and a belief in self, I think, if I were to kind of um, try to distill that off the cuff, you know, you speak about um, self-love and and self-worth. And um, these are topics that are near and dear to my heart as uh, a woman working in academia as well and also mentoring students. Um, And so, yeah, I've been just you know, really riveted by your work and the rigor that you put into it. So I thought perhaps we could begin um, just with a quote that I found really evocative um, in one of your many publications. You said that life is about the continuity of the experiences that you have, not about the breaks in times. So often people break time in their bio and say, I used to do this, but I do this now. And so I'm a professor and an author and a public speaker today, but part of me is still that chess player at 10. That's part of the story too. Can you speak a bit about this holistic self that includes parts of you from your youth right through to today? The funny thing is, 
I remember being a chess player just as vividly as I rem- as I am a professor today. Like it's so clear, and I understand that I am a twin. So everything I experienced playing my 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 sister was a she played chess too. We were like <laughs> a dynamic duo. Sometimes we would we would team up like to to make sure we beat at the tournaments. Like wanted to make sure we beat a certain person. <laughs> just so we could watch each other beat the next person like we would team up it was like a dynamic duo and the thing is is that you know so much of my childhood now that I'm grown and I can reflect back um I think it's why I work it so well in collaboration with other people is because I I actually you know when you're a twin you you you're it's just a gifted you're you're gifted a partner for life ah you're literally gifted a person that you have to understand and work with and communicate and from birth not you met them when you were 25 right most people meet their partner when they're in their 20s no 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 i'm talking about someone (laughs) in kindergarten you have to be negotiating space negotiating Mm. time for yourself Mm. you're so i've always i've just realized that some of what maybe people take as my like magic or whatever it is it's just because not many people meet an academic who is also a twin. <laughs> Not a, I don't have any colleagues who are twins. I don't know anyone else in this space who is also a twin. So I think, to be honest, that's a. I have to give her some of the credit. I think <laughs> some of it is that. Mm-hmm. So I am a. I'm. I've been trained from birth to be what I consider to be able to communicate. Mm-hmm. Just in a very different way than when you're born as a single person. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, you know, I have shared narratives with a person. Like I have someone who's always checking me like, oh, no, that's not how it happened. And the truth is they, they actually were there. <laughs> not like it's an older, you know, it's not an older sibling giving you their version of events or somebody younger who, no, the person was actually standing right beside you and they have a different version of events. So it's like, I always have a check and balance. So there's that. And then the, the third thing is, is that I realized that I've just, I, you know, I'm just one of those people I can almost compare it to, you know, when there's like a little pebble is 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 thrown down the hill and then it, it keeps building and, and getting bigger and bigger because it's picking up stuff. Mm-hmm. And then by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, it's like this huge rock. It's like I've just kind of been like that my entire life. I kind of just take things with me. I don't even the the things that I've experienced in life, like biting betrayal <laughs> okay. mm. i've been betrayed by some people who i thought were really like friends for life kind of thing Biting mm-hmm. mm-hmm. lies from people that i was in relationship with yeah i've experienced like really painful um deceit essentially mm-hmm. and i take that with me too <laughs> i take that with me as a lesson to learn from and to grow from, even though in the moments of those things, they were really difficult and took you so, you know, it always takes you so long to get over and you're just thinking about it. And, and you're also judging yourself, like, how could you be led and how could you let this person and all the stuff. But then as the years passed, you realize that that happened so that you wouldn't meet that type of person again, because you now have sort of like a corporal memory of that Mm -hmm the presence of that type of person so that mm-hmm. it's it's it really is a gift because <laughs> you have like a shield right never if you're attuned to yourself and you actually use it as a learning moment not as a shameful moment or you beat up yourself about it but if you actually learn in those moments it's true you actually become a really powerful person so i actually think a lot of the the vibration that people pick up from me it's because of that it's because of all the stuff that i've been through mm-hmm. i made the decision to use it as growth not mm-hmm. as bitterness angerness blaming other people for my problems so it's almost like you know you're meeting me at this stage when i'm that big rock <laughs> that's already gone down the hill 
And so you're like, wow, look at you. You're so formed. And it's like, well, you know, you didn't see me when I started as the pebble, right? Yes. And so I had to go through a lot of stuff and pick up a lot of stuff to get to be the boulder that everybody now sees and thinks is so amazing. It's like, yeah, but it was just, a, it's been a journey to get here. Yeah, I love what you say about having been attuned to yourself. It sounds like you had a lot of self-compassion for yourself through those hard times, yes. through those betrayals. And um, and that my, my sense is that it allowed you to move through that period of time still connected to your heart. I know sometimes in my own life and also um, in the lives of loved ones um, that I'm close with, that when we have gone through a hard time, sometimes it, you can almost protect the heart a bit and shut yeah. shut that heart down but that's actually a source of our creativity or a source of our our vibrancy and so um, I wonder if you can speak to that as well that um, perhaps how you kept the heart open and then as you say you know used it towards embodied wisdom really that you can now yeah. use that experience rather than um sort of closing down around that for a period of time yeah because I mean I obviously like a lot of people I'm in tune to like self-help and you know various gurus out there who offer like wisdom and and mm -hmm. I can't I don't want to attribute this to someone because I can't remember who but mm -hmm. but it, it was it's just always something I, th I would say the last 10-15 years that, I, that I've begun to realize and it's that you know other people can only treat you you know, um, sort of the way to the, or they can only treat you to the extent that they've done work on themselves. Mm -hmm. So you're always meeting people at various stages of development, even though we're all quote unquote adults. <laughs> okay. Yes. We're actually not. Everybody is at a different stage of emotional development. So they can only treat you the way to the extent that they've grown or done the work. And so because of that, another person's actions, even though it's painful and it hurts you, actually has nothing to do with you. It is a mirror reflection of that person. Yes. You were just like collateral damage <laughs> that person and their That's inability correct. to grow, to reflect, to take responsibility, to to just, you know, be what I think we're supposed to be as humans, ever evolving. Not mm -hmm. in place. And so when you realize that it has really nothing to do with you, even though it was experienced by you, for me, that that released me from holding on to it. It's like that happened. It was a moment in life. But I'm still me, like I'm still the same person. And understand when people say, when people I've had this in my life, people said, Oh, you've changed. I call my twin and say, have I changed? And she's like, uh -huh. no, you're the same person from, uh, we were two. Thank you. So I actually have a life check. <laughs> like someone <laughs> who actually knows me <laughs> from yes. the beginning to always do an assessment of myself. And so when I hear nonsense about how I've changed on this and this, it's easy to deflect it because I, I actually know that that's not true. Because if I had changed, somebody in life would have told me because they've known me the longest. They've actually known me even longer than my, my parents. <laughs> if you think about it, I met, I met my twin before my mother, technically. Yeah. I had to be birthed to meet my mother. I met my twin at inception. So there's just a very different sense. So for me, that's why I say it's like I walk, even though I'm an individual, I have this thing that's different because I, I not many people can say that somebody knows them from they were two, right? Yeah. And seen them through every stage of development. So I think that is the reason I, I've been able to be so adaptive when things have happened that maybe haven't been so great, right? Um, it's just allowed me to say, that's them. That's not me. And, but then even though it's them and it's not me, the one question that I do ask myself is where was, like, where w was I at li in life? And what was I going through that I, that that type of energy came into my life? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I actually believe that there's a reason you meet the, the people that you meet at certain stages in your life. Like mm-hmm. I think about where I am now in life. I don't meet the same people I met when I was a grad student, for example. Mm-hmm. Totally different time. Or when I was in high school, the type of friends that I would, you just don't meet them. So I think, where was I in life? And often when I do a read of myself, when I've met people who ended up not being who they said they were or who I thought they were, often I was going through a transitional phase in life. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Like there was a gap in my life where something was changing and I was looking for something and, and, or, or I had just finished a major like period in life and I, and I was starting over and, and I've, I've had many, things like that happen in life where I sensed, oh, this is a new beginning, especially if you leave, if you've lived in a city for how many years and then you move back or you move to another place, those are always transitional moments. And those are usually the moments where you meet new people (laughs) and right. Think about it. And usually when you meet those new people at this new transitional phase, some of those people end up not being so good for you. You know, that is really fascinating. I've moved quite a lot in my life and had a lot of transitions as well. And one of the things that I really admire about you and your work and in many of the YouTube videos and podcasts that I've listened to is that you you are um, bringing, you know, you're you're always calibrating back to self, your inner attuned self, your life. Um, And I'm so happy to hear that you have this twin that can always be there to sort of help with that family um, feeling, you know, that goes back to the beginning of your life. You know, I I live far away from my family and I haven't even been home um, in a really long time. And so I carry um, family members with me. Some have passed who had a great influence on my life and on my worldview and my values. Um, And as I get older, I'm realizing how important that is to keep that going. as well, so that we can kind of remember who we are and uh, what we're what we're here to do, what the work is. Yeah, and I mean, but you know, I also have family that I don't talk to. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> right? And by choice, I, yeah, yeah. It's 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 what's you know, Iyanla Van Zant said something in a video that I watched um, the other day, and it was it's it's because I practice radical self care. Mm-hmm. It, it, that that comes first for me. It's not about lineage or how many years known. It's does this make me feel good or doesn't it? It's life is actually Ugh. way more simple, right? Than we think it is. And if the people who, if you think about like really Zen people, like people who have reached a spiritual nirvana, mm-hmm. if you go and meet those people, like like um the Dalai Lama or whoever it is you meet them and you think they're simpletons because of the way they talk, or they might pose a very simple question to you. And you're thinking life is complex. No, no, no. Life is actually very simple. We make it complicated. Does someone make you feel good or don't they? <laughs> and if you don't stop hanging out with them. It's not yeah. complicated. It doesn't matter who their parents are. It doesn't matter if they're wealthy. It doesn't matter who they know. And all the things we do, concessions we make to be around people who don't make us feel good. The truth is that's what gets in the way, I believe, of creativity. Mm. Most creative people who are able to sustain it, like I think about the life of, of, of Jean-Michel Basquiat. You know, Jean-Michel Basquiat was a genius artist. Like, to to this day, people still cite Basquiat. Like, people still look at that work and like, wow, right? Like, he was in a different era. Yes, but his fatal flaw is that he he was surrounded by really toxic people. Uh. And being one of them, okay? <laughs> surrounded by people who actually didn't nurture him. They just mm-hmm. wanted the talent. Mm. Right. They love the talent, but him as a person, how is he feeling? What is he going through? Who cares about that? And so eventually, of course, it unraveled. Mm -hmm. Right. So, again, the only way you can sustain a craft is by figuring out who makes you feel good and who doesn't. Yeah. And it sounds like also we need to be able to be open to feeling sometimes, you know, in the world that we live in, we might shut down our actual embodied sensations. And so we might not even notice. Well, we think it doesn't matter. It's like, oh, like, like, I think some as an adult, 
a lot of adults have lost touch with their inner child. Yes. Because kids do that. You, you put kids together and then you might say to a little kid, why are you not playing with Emily? Emily doesn't make me feel good. Mm-hmm. They'll just say, I don't like Emily. She says stuff that I don't like. An adult would, would just pretend that Emily was great. <laughs> Even though they have the same feeling that they're not making you feel good, they would still go along with it to be nice and polite. Meanwhile, yeah. why would you do that? It doesn't mean as an adult you're rude, but if somebody doesn't make you feel good, you have to limit your interaction with them because your body is actually telling you that you and that person are not a good pairing. Like you just shouldn't be together. It doesn't mean that that person is a bad person. They're just not the right person for you to be interacting with. And I make those decisions. Believe me, there's a lot of people, even at my university, who don't like me. And it's because we're cut. Okay. I have nothing to do with you because you don't make me feel good as a person. And it's not my sense of you. You have said things to me that don't make me feel good. Yeah. So I just have to leave you to live your life and I will live my life over here. For me, it's, it's not complicated at all. So that is part of your radical self-care in academia then to sort of um, go towards the good the good feels and avoid any sort of um, uh, person that may cause a disturbance in the heart and the gut. Absolutely. Like if someone says, if you hear through the grapevine that I'm in an argument with someone, know that they're lying (laughs) because I will not be in my adult life arguing with people who are not of genetic relation. (laughs) Who's got the time, right? right? I'll argue with my mother, my dad, my my yeah. my twin anyone else of course i'm not in argument with you i just said have a blessed day and i didn't say anything to you <laughs> and now you're telling people that though she said this and this what did i say believe me i will never send anyone an email telling them exactly how i feel about them instead you'll so be spending your time oh, being yeah, creative exactly. no one says yeah. cheryl said this about me where it's not on my <laughs> social media I don't use social media to attack people. I would never send an email to you telling you how I really feel because that's evidence. And you don't want to be leaving a trail of evidence in your work email. If you don't have my number and I don't have yours, that should tell you that we're actually not friends. (laughs) Only friends have my number. So any of those, if you check the box, that means whatever they're telling you that I said to them, it's just a lie. So it sounds like for you, radical self-care as an academic involves um, everything that you've mentioned and boundaries, clear boundaries, so that you can be the prolific, creative, brilliant scholar and academic that you are. You're freeing up your time by not getting caught up in noise. Am I on the right track? Yep. I make no room for distraction. Oh, I love that. I want for myself, such as going to dinner with friends, going on a patio, watching TV, going on road trips, lovely distractions, anything else, I remove it immediately. It's like an infestation of roaches, in my opinion. Don't let that fester. If you see one, (laughs) just know (laughs) the rest are coming. So for me, yeah, I I don't play around with them. And it's because of all the experiences I've had with betrayal and all the stuff, mm-hmm. I, I've come to realize that e- even in in a relationship, in friendship, in family, every time you've been hurt that way, it's like a piece of you is taken. Mm-hmm. Right? Something something has changed in you, and yeah. if you don't learn your lesson and you keep going through that, I actually think there's a point where you just shut down like what you described, like everything shuts down and your heart shuts down and you just, and then if you're shut down, how could you be creative? Oh yeah. I mean, it's impossible to be creative at that point. You, you, so they actually have ruined your life. You you, you let them. I, I once taught a course where I tried to explain this to a group of like 21 year olds. Mm -hmm. I actually think maybe two, maybe six of them got it. It was a small class. It was about 
17 of us. The rest of them, I'm not sure if they got it. And what I said to them was, there's a difference between being a victim and being victimized, right? Any one of us can be victim at any given time in our lives. You leave your house, you get hit by a car, you're a victim. Mm -hmm. Somebody does something tragic to you, victim. Any mm -hmm. Victim is not a shameful position to be in or a position that you feel like you, you should not tell anyone that you were a victim. Mm -hmm. allowing, your, allowing yourself to be victimized by a situation, a person or an institution is a choice. You're deciding to, to allow this thing to control you. You are deciding to allow that person, however they feel about you, to affect your personal life. You're allowing a person to tell you that you're nothing and you believe them. It, it really is about your own self-worth. And, mm -hmm. I, and you know, another person, I've heard people talk about this, part of being creative and, and part of growing and maturing as a person is also understanding that self-worth is not the same thing as self-value. You know? Yes, please feel free to speak to this. I, I loved what you said about this in one of your uh, publications. Yeah, yeah because self-worth is inside out. Self-value mm -hmm. is outside in. So you mm -hmm. tend to value yourself based on the things that people say about you. Oh, you're so pretty. Oh, you're so smart. Or you're so this. That tends to increase your sense of value. Self-worth has nothing to do with that. Self-worth is what do you say to yourself when you get up in the morning? <laughs> and nobody, <laughs> nobody's, nobody's there or nobody's awake yet and it's just you. What do you say to yourself when you go to the washroom and you look in the mirror like, how do you actually feel when you win that award? Are you thinking, oh, I really deserve this? Or deep down, are you actually thinking I'm nothing? They Don't they know I don't deserve it? That's self-worth. And so many people don't work on their self-worth. They're so attached to their self-value that that means if you're in relationship with them, the minute you stop complimenting them, they start to turn on you. <laughs> because their self-worth was so attached to your praise of them the minute you give one critique suddenly because they haven't worked on their self-worth they now think you hate them and now you're an enemy and now they they, they just become a terror oh, and you're boy. like oh my goodness like what did i do and it's because that person thinks so little of themselves inside that they're so attached to other people valuing them that you know how could how could that that's not a sustainable situation mm -hmm. and i think a lot of the violence that we see in the world has a lot to do with that, with individuals who have extremely low self-worth and have attached their value to external things. And then oh. when the external things don't live up to the standard or they don't give them what they feel like they need, they have no ability to, to heal inward out. Oh, so, I love that idea of healing inward out. Yeah. But it's tough work. It's, it is. It's, it's tough work, it's, especially if you've had a very traumatic life mm -hmm. and, and you've never done it as an adult. You've never looked in. It's always out. And, you know, I think about especially, you know, being in my 40s and a single person, um, you know, it's kind of tough because I meet a lot of men who seem really nice, but it's like there's no self-worth work going on there <laughs> like they're not working on themselves they're just looking to acquire someone because they're lonely and it's like mm -hmm. well are you like uh, it's so it's a tough conversation to have with a person because it's not really something that someone else can tell you it's, yeah you, know, you have to it, do it for yourself it's an inside job <laughs> inside job and 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 we're all on a different like i said before we're all on all on a different timeline and we're Absolutely. all on uh, sort of different levels of emotional awareness yes you know, think about that um you know when you go to a fair <laughs> and you have to like there's that big stick and you're like hit the bell and then the thing <laughs> will shoot up yes. and, and, and as the thing shoots up there's like different gradations Right? Yes, it's graded that, that that like uh vertical line is graded. I would say that's a metaphor for people's emotional well being. <laughs> okay, like we're on a grade. And yeah, 
you know, I think not everybody's so, so you have to figure out where are you in that on the grade and who's around you and where are they on the grade? And I've just made the conscious decision that I want to be around people who are on the similar grade. I, oh, I don't I love have time that. anymore for the, if you're below or even too high, I just don't have time for you because we're not going to work. There's going to be conflict, <laughs> guaranteed conflict, right? And I remove conflict so that I can write. I removed conflict so that my mind is clear, so that I could see. I, you know, when I write, I time travel. So it's like I need to be able to oh, travel. I love that without baggage. <laughs> okay? I love that. I no love the baggage. image of time traveling. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. This, I do. Uh, Feel free, please. You know, time traveling is real. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Time. I go back into time. And if I'm in, t- I really believe this, I'm in time and it's like I'm, a, I'm walking through the 1820s and I'm checking out the scene and I'm trying to figure it out. I cannot have noise in the background that's from 2022 when mm-hmm. I'm in 1822 it's incongruent, right? It doesn't match. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're in a, you're just in a mismatch. So for me, part of why I have created, I would say, a, um, what do they call it? Um, that seal, uh, it starts with an H, uh, something hermetic or whatever seal, you know, like, Oh, I do have it on the tip of my tongue. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, don't, let, don't let it bother you. Don't let it stick. Yeah, hermetically, there. hermetically. Yes, yeah. Hermetic seal. Yes. That's it. It's a hermetic seal. I, I, I do. I bubble myself in from, from people who, who one don't have my best interest at, at heart Two, mm-hmm. they don't really care if I succeed or not. That's the success narrative is really important to me. I, I realized this as I've gotten older, you know, when I was younger, I would have so many people in my life that really didn't care. <laughs> like I remember really amazing things would happen and I would tell them and they'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. And then they would start talking about themselves and I, I would kind of let it go. Like I would yeah. say, oh, well, you know, you can't expect friends to, you know, be everything. Now as I'm an adult, I realize, no, I want people to care that that's mm-hmm. a value again everybody has a different value things that they value in life and everyone has a different love language as well right like mm-hmm. what it is that you take as an expression of love and for me care is one of them <laughs> like care <laughs> is my love language i don't need gifts i don't even need i don't need i don't need diamonds i hate diamonds i don't need any of that i just need you to actually care so if I come in I and say, hey, this happened, the person's like, tell me all about, tell me all about it is like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody says that, I'm like, oh my gosh, where have you been all my life? Like, that's <laughs> how I feel. It, it really is my love language, just being present mm-hmm. and wanting to hear about somebody else's success or win or something that just made them feel good. That. And I can tell you a lot of, if you were to poll a lot of adults, I would tell you, I think it's such a high percentage. They never get that. Oh my gosh. That's what's missing in their lives. And and some of them don't even know that that's what's missing. And then if they're not doing them that for themselves through that self-worth piece, then there's an emptiness there that it's a longing that is always seeking to be filled. Yes. You know. And it's not yeah. the same thing as a compliment, right? It's not really praise. I think people confuse um, a desire to to hear about somebody else's life with praise. Like, I actually hate being praised. It doesn't make, I always think praise com- is conditional. It feels <laughs> like a bit someone, distant. No, well, someone's praising you. Be, I just think they're praising you because they want something. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just don't, I don't trust it. Right. Too much praise is always coming with something. Right. So I, 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 I pay attention to praise. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about just taking an interest. Like think Mm -hmm. about, again, I don't have children, but I, I, I'm around a lot of kids and I see how, you know, 
at the end of the day, like I think again, that inner child, most kids, they just want your attention. Absolutely. You know, they don't even care what you even say. Look, 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 look. Like (laughs) they just want you to see. And when you repeatedly don't see them, Mm -hmm. something in that inner child does start to fade away. And I I think as an adult, how do you recoup it? I think that's because probably this is a lifelong thing. It didn't just start at 30. It's like somewhere in your bio, people just stop paying attention to you. Yeah. And we we crave attuned presence for connection, for true connection. Yeah. You know? I mean, how do you, not to get too exist, ex, um, existential, but how do you know, you know, how do you know that you exist if nobody notices you? <laughs> how do you actually know that you're here? <laughs> <laughs> some some days I don't some days I'm like what day is it what month is it you know if, if I'm having one of those academic kind of weeks where I'm sort of just my head's down and I'm doing work I'll kind of just sort of go wait a second have I even kind of connected to my body today or to nature yeah. or to my breath you know these are really important things I think for us to do so that we 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 feel our embodied presence yes in our work, right? And we're able to bring all of ourselves to the work that we do. But it's not easy sometimes when we have deadlines or <laughs> how do we know we exist? Yeah. Some yeah, days I mean, I'm not I'm not there, you know? No, and the only way you do is with uh, without being so attached constantly to outward praise is to have healthy self-talk. Like mm-hmm. I have very healthy self-talk. Um, as I'm writing, I'll write something and be like, oh, that's it right there. Yes. <laughs> like, I, I'll like write a passage and I'll just clap. I just like, Good I for do you. That. I like, love I, that. Right? I celebrate myself through the process. I am constantly positively reaffirming. Every time I write something, I'm positively reaffirming. Like, oh, that was a tough passage. Ooh, good for me. I really, I really explained that well. Oh, I, and then right now, you know, I'm writing my book and I know I'm going to pass it to an editor. And I keep saying to myself, oh, Siobhan's going to love this. Like I'm, I'm already like preparing myself for, to hand it off to her. Even oh, though how exciting. Feedback, you know, the feedback's going to be maybe a little tough and maybe I'm not seeing things the way <laughs> It needs to be, but I'm already excited about the process of sharing. And I, I bring all of that to the work. I don't have negative self-talk about my creative process ever. I love that. You know, when I was, uh, I read your first book, Beauty in a Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture. And I found it fascinating on so many levels. I learned so much from reading it. Um, I also really admired the structure of the book. Um, And so I was sort of, you know, studying the form at the same time that I was engaged in the great, you know, research and scholarship. And I recently saw one of your YouTube videos and in it, you shared um, a little bit about your experience when you were first proposing this research topic. And this goes back to this idea of knowing your self-worth and um, knowing that it was a topic that you wanted to explore and that was, you know, a completely awesome topic and that would serve uh, various communities. Um, but I recall in that YouTube video that you mentioned that others at that time didn't see the utility of the research that you were interested in and that you created space for that topic to exist. You know, I watched that YouTube video and I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. And you said that the field didn't seem to make space without you creating that space for yourself. And that's when I kind of did a bit of a happy dance. (laughs) And you said that you made a conscious decision to create the field that you wanted to see. I just Mm -hmm. love that. And so that book changed the field. You persevered and you are working on centering black Canadian voices through your ongoing research and scholarship. And in that little YouTube video, you actually mentioned, acclaimed author Toni Morrison's quote of, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, you must be the one to write it. Mm -hmm. And you said that that's exactly what you've been trying to do since you've been in the field. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the book, the process, and anything else you'd like to share about that self-worth piece that helped you persevere and essentially pioneer a field in Canada. Mm -hmm. Really amazing stuff. Yeah, Phil, thank you so much. And it's funny because, you know, the book, like Beauty in a Box was really a, a, a complete reimagining of what was my dissertation. 
So mm. unlike most dissertations, most dissertations uh, that become books, it usually is the hardest book that you'll ever write because you almost have to start over. Like you have to reimagine what it is that you're doing. And, and so Beauty in a Box was tough because it required a lot of editing. There was mm. a lot of changes to that book. Uh, although I'm most proud of the fact chapters four and five, when you read the book, not that different from my dissertation. Like those chapters were just channeled. Honestly, I, I say that because those are the chapters that I have conscious awareness of writing them. I remember mm. when I was living in Montreal. And at that time when I was writing chapters four and five, I actually had a full-time job. It was summer. Oh, and wow. I only wrote on the weekends. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, I literally was working like nine to five, Monday to Friday. And then I had no life. I literally, I, I stopped talking to friends. I wasn't barely even leaving the apartment. Like I would just buy groceries on the way home on a Friday and I would be a shut in the entire weekend. And I would write from morning to night. So those two chapters, they're just so, you know, there's just so much in there about, there's so much in there about channeling my loneliness really my the sense of just not belonging and I, I i there were so many things that i experienced when i lived in lived in montreal as a black anglophone woman that i'm only now beginning to really like process mm -hmm. just the profound sense of otherness and mm -hmm. separation and loneliness and just feeling like I've never had the, such a profound f sense of not belonging in my own country. I oh honestly boy. realized, I mean, I've realized that now that I channeled all of that into that book. And I think that's why that book is so heavy and it's so personal. It's an academic book, but it feels personal, right? Like it feels like, and I almost feels like I'm a tour guide taking you through everything because of the way the book starts with my own story in school yeah. and school. And it, because there's a lot in that book of life and, you know, a lot of, a lot of my life I feel was, was stopped and, and not, I don't want to say taken, but there was just so much of my life I feel was fundamentally changed because mm. I was at McGill and I, and I was living in Montreal at that period in my life, which was basically mm -hmm. my mid thirties, basically my entire thirties. Cause I started my PhD at 32 that, yeah, there's, there's so much in it that, you know, I think, um, I use that book to soothe that book was like my uh, soothing me through what I was going through. And, and, and so I think that's the reason I stuck with it because it wasn't just a book. This was honestly beauty in a box was like my friend. <laughs> outside of my family and, and a few friends that I was actually communicating with, this was my friend. And this was the friend that I was engaging with every single weekend for the entire, I would have written the last parts of that book over the summer of um, 2013. And if you remember the summer of 2013, that's also when Black Lives Matter that's also when there was a lot of student strikes in, in Montreal around tuition. Yes. 20, when I was finishing this book, really the, the heaviest parts of the book were 2012, 13, 14. Those were very tumultuous years. Mm. I remember watching the Trayvon Martin trial when I was into chapter three. <laughs> like I was doing my writing and the trial was going on. And I remember being in Montreal when, when all my peers were like protesting and they were like, screw school and protesting. And I felt very disconnected from that because I felt like the mere presence, my mere presence on that campus was a protest. Oh. Why would I need to protest anymore? <laughs> oh. <laughs> like I, I kind of felt like I was living. I was the living embodiment of resistance everywhere that I went. That's what it oh. felt like living there. And, and I think people don't really understand on a psychic level, mm -hmm. me not, I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not bashing Quebec self again, self work. If you mm -hmm. want to grow as a person, institution, province, or nation, you have to be able to hear critique. Mm -hmm. you have to be Absolutely. Able to hear 
you have to be able to hear the experiences of people who are not you. Mm-hmm. And so my experience living in that place was one of extreme hostility and isolation. Oh, I'm so and sorry that I, you went through that. But don't, don't, my story ends well. Don't cry for me. For sure. What, for what sure. I did was I realized, again, the working on yourself and reflection, I realized that, no, this was just a mismatch. Here's my energy and it's it's red and it's pulsing and it's green and it's all the bright colors. And here's this energy and it's blue <laughs> and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a coincidence. Those are the colors of the, the flag. Mm. It's just a mismatch of energy. Like we were just mismatched. So I recognized around 2012, 13, that I just don't belong in this place, but I am in this place. So I have to make it work. And what I decided to do was to create a hermit. What is it? A seal. I bubbled myself. <laughs> Why are you going to try to say the word? Cause I'll get it wrong. I'll, I'll bubbled- email you later when I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I created a bubble for myself and I just made the storytelling my way to travel out of my reality. Oh, I love my, that. Right. I was transporting myself into a different place and time every single day that I wrote that book. And you know, it's funny because there's an article, one of the first journal articles that I wrote as a PhD student, uh, well, I would have been a candidate. It was written in the summer of 2014, just before I left Montreal. It was about the dawn of tomorrow, cultivating narratives of race and place about the dawn. That article, understand me, I wrote that article in three weeks. And I wrote it at the McGill library. I wrote it at like the library, like the commons <laughs> library. <laughs> and I just wrote it. I just, I just thought, you know what? I, I had a gap. I, I had submitted my dissertation in like early spring. It was like April or May of 2014. I had submitted my dissertation. I, I knew I was leaving Montreal. Uh, I think I left Montreal in like June or July. Mm-hmm. I think it was July. So I had about two months where I was like, oh, I have nothing. Like I, I literally had nothing. I, I wasn't teaching. I wasn't doing anything. And I, I had the wherewithal, probably because of my age, to say, let me use these next two months to create. Forget Ooh, doing stupid things that. that people do. Let me go, like, like people do stupid things when they're going to leave a city that they're not going to live in again. Let me go visit all my favorite places. Ugh. I could, at that point, I could care less about all my favorite places and understand I I had places in Montreal that I did like that even now that I think about, but the totality of it was just not a good experience for me, but I had two months. So what did I do? I said, you know what? There's bits and bobs from the, the research that I, that didn't fit within the context of my dissertation. Interesting. And I had the wherewithal to say, you know, nobody's ever written in depth about a black Canadian newspaper. Like I've yet to see an article about a black Canadian newspaper. I've seen people flick to it, but they haven't like made it their corpus where they were going to tell what did this newspaper do during its like 50 year run. Mm. I went to the library. I had, I had about a month. I had about a month by this point. I wrote it over three weeks did an edit myself because at this point I was became pretty good at editing myself. And then I was like, okay, what do I do? Where do I submit it? And it was just by chance, an email went around the listserv that the Canadian journal of history was, had a graduate essay prize. (laughs) And I thought, well, this is a history. I'm not a history student, but you know, this is a history. Oh my gosh. You know what? Let me just on a whim, let me just submit the paper. I had just finished the paper. So the timing was good and I had edited it. I submitted the paper to the essay prize. It left my mind completely in 20. uh, This would have been, so the end of 2014, I defended my dissertation in like uh, late October, November of 2014. If it wasn't like three weeks later, I get an email saying, congratulations, you're the winner of the graduate essay prize. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I was so shocked. It's amazing. Congratulations. But that is the beginning of me believing that I could write histories. That's when I I, love that. That's when my self-worth or my value 
Mm -hmm. kind of went up to realize, Mm -hmm. oh, even though I'm not trained as a historian, one of the most acclaimed history journals in Canada has just said that I am worthy, (laughs) basically. And it just changed everything. That is the beginning. If you look at that article, so when you, if you read that article again, understand that's the beginning. Read we, we will link to that in the show notes for sure. Yes. We're going to link to everything in the show notes. Read the other ones that came after and you'll see. You'll see what's in that article. Like I read it now, almost like, what is it, like eight years later? I'm shocked at myself how dense that article is as a grad student to have written that. It's, oh, that's awesome. It, it gives me the chills, <laughs> to be honest. And but I realized looking back on my life and where I was at that place, I was in such a zone. Mm. I was I was in a zone because I I was al- I was <laughs> that rhymes, but I was alone. And I, and I was but I wasn't lonely, honestly. Yeah. Words, words were my friend. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, awesome. Some people say, "Oh, that sounds so sad." I love it. Oh my gosh. Like, you didn't have any distractions. You had no noise. So you had that time to focus in that beautiful, really well-equipped library. I mean, that's yes. pretty, pretty I mean, great. That, is, that is another thing I do miss. <laughs> there's, there's a few things I miss. That library, it just meant so much to me because it just had everything. I, I never, as a grad student, I never was like, oh, they don't have a library. Nope. They, certain books, maybe they didn't have, but what an amazing place. Concordia was just down the street. Mm. And if Miguel didn't have it, Concordia had it. Uh. So in many ways, it's like, even though on the totality of it, you know, I felt so isolated and alone. I I just believe I, I am, I'm not a, a re- necessarily a religious person, but I am a spiritual person. And I believe that God always mm-hmm. gives you what you need. Like everything that I needed at the end of the day was still present. I, I had everything. And so even in the storm, it's like I had an umbrella, right? And it was like, it was fine. So I was still able to to do the things that I wanted to do. And I think, um, you know, at that time, I also, through my grad school, uh, was betrayed by lots of people. <laughs> even oh. faculty, some faculty member at that school did some really horrible things to me. But I let it go. I... And the reason I was able to let it go, um, and again, people might hear this and think she's such an arrogant woman, but I'm actually not. I let it go because I knew I was somebody and I knew that they knew it too. (laughs) Yes. So it was mutual understanding that I'm going places and those places won't include you. Okay. So I think that was fully understood. I love that, Cheryl. I I really do. Um, thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I agree you are going places. I said to uh, one of my friends, or maybe it was my partner, you know, I can't wait to meet with Dr. Cheryl Thompson this week, you know, Order of Canada 2045, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you never know. Oh. Put it out there, put it out there. And you want to, yeah, I can tell you another quick funny story, actually. Yeah. It's when I, so when I was, it was like 20, 2013, I won an award uh, at the McCord Museum to be mm. a fellow for the entire year, where I got the opportunity to look through their entire, the um, the Notman collection, which is their photographic collection of William Notman, one of the most prolific, um, not just Canadian, but photographers in general of the 19th century and so as the capstone of that fellowship you have and um you can still find this talk actually on my website drcherylthompson.com if you look under i think it's public talks it's the very last one because it was the first one that was recorded so i would have recorded this in 2013 i think and i look at my i look at the glasses i was wearing it's like you can tell that it's like 10 years ago um but I, I had to give a, a, a talk like to the donors of the museum. Like it was like a capstone for winning the fellowship. Like basically what did you do during the fellowship? And, mm. you know, looking back, it's like I was a grad student and I had to give an hour long keynote. <laughs> it was actually pretty intense Wow. Yeah, to not academics, but the public. It was oh, like wow. people who gave money to the McCord museum. So I walk into their auditorium 
And sitting in front of me, average age, I want to say was like 63. Okay. <laughs> average age. So <laughs> there was a row of like wheelchair bound seniors and everybody else was pretty much 50 plus and, and 99% white. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and I would say mostly probably if you know Montreal coming from Westmount somewhere. <laughs> so there was a certain air in the room. And I thought to myself, don't let this throw you one and two, you know, be open. At the end of the day, the people know what the topic is because they had to share that in the bulletin. So everyone who was there knew that I was going to be talking about 19th century photographs of graphs of black women in Montreal. That was mm -hmm. the topic. So I get out there and at first I was a little nervous. Anyway, I get behind the podium and it was a real auditorium. Like it was semi dimmed lights, spotlight on me. And so mm. I couldn't really see the audience too well. I could sort of make out like there was the wheelchair section I could see because they were in the front and, you know, funny enough, like 20 minutes in, one of them was like sleeping. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay. It's, I didn't take it personally. It's an age issue. I mm -hmm. understand the demographic that it, it was not about me, but it's, you know, someone's in their nineties and someone's giving an academic talk. It's probably not going to be the most stimulating thing. Right. Point is after the talk, I'll never forget this. It was a meet and greet. I couldn't believe it. People were like, that was amazing. I learned so much. One woman had a notepad. She's like, I took notes. Oh yeah. Go back and read the notes. And then you know what she said to me? I don't know if it was her or if it was another woman. Another one was just like, <laughs> it was like out of a movie. She was like, I wrote your name down because kid, you got it. Yes. He's like, whatever it is, we just saw it today and it's you. Oh yeah. <laughs> she was just like, you're going places and I'm so mm -hmm. glad I came and I met you. I don't know if this woman is still alive, but thank you so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that was the seed that needed to be planted right uh. there. So go on my website, drcherylthompson.com. That is my first ever keynote that I gave when I was like, uh, it would have been 2013. So I oh. was like my fourth year of my PhD. Can't wait to see that. I'm, I haven't seen that one. So we will link to that and I look forward to watching it as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I see a lot of my, a lot of my isms, like I have a certain way of talking, like just like I'm a very physical speaker, like online, it doesn't really project, but in person, it's like I had a lot of hand gestures and like just and I'm back and forth. And, and so when you watch that, you can see the beginning of it. It's like the, the early like tendencies. Are, are I love shown. that. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of an amazing capsule for myself. That's that exciting. Video. Yeah. And it was actually one of the early, that's kind of early for people like recording those things like colloquiums. Cause it was a colloquium that was like recorded and then put onto YouTube. Um, I'm just glad it exists. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. You know, I, I work with students and I'm always saying, come on, you know, feel free to walk around while you're doing this speech. Feel free to use gesture. So it sounds like you were free in your embodied expression of your authenticity, which is, you know, from the, from the very beginning, you know, and that's only fed into your amazing presence yes, through all the work like, you do. I mean, it's like I said to you, I think before we, we were recording, um, that's a gift. Like that's the percentage that I didn't work on. Like whatever that woman was reacting to, I have, I have no conscious awareness of what she's talking about. <laughs> All I know is I'm being myself and I'm presenting the topic as I think I should. So that has, that's something that's just there, right? That I, that I, cause if I had conscious awareness of it, it means that I've had to work at it. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's just, that's just given. The second half of this interview will continue in our next episode. Please join us. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com, where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag Voicing Creativity Podcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voicing Creativity Podcast was produced on Treaty One territory, 
the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. The Voicing Creativity podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts, and by research assistant Jordan Berkman. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketzamusic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other Season 1 episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity Podcast. Thank you.